forward, please. I don't have much of an introduction for the sermon today because it was getting a little long in my notes and sometimes uh, I feel like the introduction, though it can be very helpful to us as I try to draw us into what we're talking about today, um, can sometimes just be uh, a little bit more than needful. But I will say this as we begin our sermon today, since the beginning of our study in John, which has been some time now, we have learned many things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've learned of its divine origins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have learned of its unquestionable truth. We have learned about mankind's natural aversion to it. We recall that that is sort of the, the second parallel theme. We have the Gospel in one theme, and the other great theme of John is that darkness that man loves darkness rather than light. That while there is this vein of belief whereby we might be saved, yet there are so many who, it's not that they won't be saved, it's that they don't want to be saved. It's that they have rejected the light, they have rejected the truth. Men loved darkness rather than light. And so we see this great truth of belief and this great vein of unbelief, and we've seen that throughout the book of John already. We have learned of the authority that declares the truth, the authority that rests in Jesus Christ and the Word of God, and we have learned uh, in particular over the past few weeks of the Trinity's role as we understood the Holy Spirit's role, God the Father's role, and God the Son's role in salvation, and then our responsibility to that in John 3. Today I would like us to learn more about the Gospel. The message is entitled, if you have your notes there, The Richness of the Gospel. I felt that was an appropriate title because that is really what we're learning of today. We have already seen so much about what the gospel is and its authority and its foundation. Well, as we look in John 4, this will be the, the account of the Samaritan woman. There's a richness that we will see to this gospel account. It's another gospel account. It's another account of a person who recognizes her need for salvation and responds to that need. But there's a richness here, and I would like us to understand from that three insights into the richness of the gospel from Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman in John 4. So three insights this afternoon. Now I'm going to jump right in. It's a long passage. We've got 42 verses to cover, and so let's get busy. John 4, beginning in verse 1, says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, that's what we talked about last week, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. The first insight I would like us to see into the gospel this afternoon is, number one, the gospel holds no prejudice. The gospel holds no prejudice. According to the statement made in John 4.1, we can safely assume that these events took place soon after John the Baptist's speech to the Pharisees in John 3 that we covered last week. In fact, all of the events thus far in the book have been quite strictly chronological as it seems to be. There may have been gaps of, of a few months here and there over time, but as a whole, there has been good sequence and rather uh, condensed timeline over the course of these events. Now, Jesus heard about the Pharisees' contention with John, and he decided that he needed to leave Judea. There may have been uh, various reasons why Jesus would have decided that it was time for him to leave. Perhaps 
He wanted to take some of the pressure off of John. John was receiving a lot of pressure because of these Pharisees at the time. Maybe he wanted to take some of that off. Perhaps he saw how quickly the Pharisees had been turning against him, had been turning against his message, and uh, knowing that it was not yet God's time, he needed to kind of slow the process down. The men were, were in disbelief, and maybe they were just too, too, uh, too vigorous in their disbelief, and they were, <laughs> were, were wanting perhaps to kill him a bit earlier than was his time, and so maybe he needed to slow the process down. I don't exactly know why it was that after hearing about John the Baptist, he felt the need to leave Judea, but he did. And so he planned and did leave the area of Judea. Jesus departed to return to Galilee, where he had been prior to the Passover feast. Now, Galilee, as we recall, is in the northern portion of Israel that is defined by the Sea of Galilee. If you think about a map of Israel, perhaps you can turn to the map in the back of your Bible if you have one. We have the Dead Sea. We have the Jordan River that connects the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee in the north. Now, just at the top of that sea of, uh, or of the Dead Sea, if we go west from there, that's the general region where Jerusalem would be. In that area, we have Judea, Judea being south of, of the area of Jerusalem and a little bit to the east of it. And then we have that northern area, that area of Galilee that is near the Sea of Galilee. Now, it was in Galilee that Cana, where Jesus Christ's first miracle was, as well as Capernaum, Resided. Capernaum was the area after he went to Cana, where he went. He dropped his mother off at Capernaum, then he came down to the Passover feast. Both these cities we have learned about already in the book of John. Now, between Judea and Galilee, there was a portion of land. And by the time the Romans had taken over in Israel, and by the time they had been well established in Israel, this portion of land had come to be known as Samaria. Samaria was officially annexed as a part of Israel. It was officially a part of Israel, but it would have been claimed by no Jew. No Jew in Galilee, no Jew in Judea would have claimed the region of Samaria. Those who lived in Samaria were seen in the eyes of devout Jews as being unclean, as being pagan, as being defiled in every respect. In order to understand why, we need to look a little bit at the history of that northern kingdom during the divided monarchy, the nation of Israel. The Samaritans were descendants of the northern nation of Israel. After Israel had split into the southern kingdom of Judea, uh, excuse me, of Judah, and the northern kingdom of Israel, that northern kingdom of Israel would be those through whom the Samaritans would come. Those ten tribes split from the Davidic monarchy during the days of Rehoboam. You recall Jeroboam being the king that was over those northern ten tribes of Israel. Now, these kings of Israel had established the city of Samaria as their capital. So, in Judah, Jerusalem was the capital. In Israel, Samaria was the capital. And much of their reign was associated with the city of Samaria, just as Judah's reign had been associated with Jerusalem. Now, Israel, due to their tremendous wickedness and the tremendous wickedness of their kings, was allowed by God to be taken into captivity 
hundreds of years prior to the captivity of Judah. 2 Kings 17 describes for us and gives record of Israel's final days as a sovereign nation under King Hosea and testifies of God's great righteousness in judging these people's manifold transgressions. And so King Hosea was the last king of the northern tribes. The Assyrians were the nation that would come in and would defeat Israel and take the northern ten tribes of Israel into captivity. Now in time, Judah would be sent into captivity as well. God stated explicitly in Jeremiah 25.12 that their captivity would be for 70 years. And those 70 years were intended to be specifically for a reason. Because there had been 490 years since Israel had entered into the land of, into the promised land. And never once had they observed a Sabbath year, the seventh year of rest for the land. You recall in the law, God had demanded that every seventh year there would be no planting on the land, that any vines would be allowed to, be, to grow unpruned, that the land would, would be untilled, that the land would have a, a season of rest every seven years. It was the Sabbath year. God promised that in the sixth year, he would manifoldly bless their harvest, enough so that they could actually get through two years on the sixth year's harvest. And that would allow them to live that seventh year without doing anything to the land, a complete Sabbath. Well, 490 years had gone by and never once had Israel given the land its rest. Not one year, not one Sabbath. And so God said, as he sent Judah into captivity of Babylon, I'm going to take those 70 years of rest back from you. And so I'm going to take you and deliver you into the hands of Babylon for 70 years in order that the land might have its 70 years of rest. As Judah entered into captivity, Ezekiel 16 tells us that there already was a people in that land called the Samaritan people. This was a group of mixed-blooded Israelites. Remember those northern ten tribes that had been sent into captivity hundreds of years earlier? Well, those northern ten tribes, what Assyria did, Assyria was one of the most brutal nations ever in their conquering habits. They would do terrible things to these nations. They would flay their skins and hang them on the walls of the cities that they had defeated. They would pile up the heads of the, the people in the cities that they had defeated, trying to show people this is what happens when you mess with the Assyrians. Another thing they did, however, was they took a lot of the people from those conquered lands and they would intermarry with them. They would take the people of those lands and they would send them to, to other parts of the nation of Assyria and they would bring Assyrians in to live in their land in order to destroy the cultural distinctions of the people. If they could destroy the cultural distinctions of the people, then there would be less chance that there would be a cultural uprising among those slaves, among those servants, among those conquered people. And so they, they sought very purposefully to intermix these, the blood with the Assyrians and the Israelites, as they did with all their conquered nations, in order that there would be a lessening of cultural distinction. Well, by the time Judah had entered into captivity, Ezekiel was already testifying that there were these people in the land known as the Samaritans. We see these people again during the time of Nehemiah, that the Samaritans are around. 
Now, the history of the Samaritans, like that of northern Israel before it, was not one of godliness. They were completely steeped in paganism, in idolatry, and it was all rooted in the sin of Jeroboam, described in many places in Kings, 1 Kings 13, 33, and 34 being one of them. Jeroboam, when those ten tribes had separated from the, the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, Jeroboam feared. He saw that the people of Israel were still interested in going down to Jerusalem for the feasts. And this was a problem to him. He said at some point, these, these nations are going to want to reconcile. It's going to happen because they serve the same God and they're, they're coming to the same place. And of course, the northern tribes need Jerusalem because that's where they're going for worship. So there's going to be some reconciliation and there's going to be a monarchy again. And he didn't want that. He was a wicked man, very selfish man. And so he set up worship places specifically for those northern ten tribes of Israel. He did one in Bethel, which as we recall, Bethel was right on the border of Ephraim and Benjamin. Benjamin was loyal to Judah, and so this was the southernmost tip of the ten tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom. And then he put one on the northernmost tip in Dan, one in Dan, one in Bethel. And those two places of worship, in each place he put a golden calf. And he said, These be thy gods, O Israel, that brought thee out of the land of Egypt. The exact same words that Aaron used when he made the golden calf while Moses was up on the mount. Jeroboam said the exact same thing, and Israel loved it. They said, These are our gods, and they worshiped them, and they thought, because of their leadership, that they were worshiping God properly. And so that goes into the Assyrian captivity. And what comes out are these, these Samaritan people. Now at some point, apparently, the Samaritan people recognized or understood their heritage. And they began to identify themselves with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. They remembered that they were from the Israel at one time. But the, as far back as their history would go in northern Israel, it, the dead end was Jeroboam's calf worship. They could never get past that calf worship. And so by the time we get to what's happening in the time of Jesus Christ, you had an entire pagan religious system that was framed around the Samaritan people. And they had a temple. Just like the temple in Jerusalem, they had a temple of their own on Mount Gerizim. Now, if you recall from the book of Joshua, Mount Gerizim did in fact have a pretty significant theological and um, spiritual emphasis to the people of Israel. I'll let you remember yourselves where that, uh, what that was, but if you remember Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, yelling the curses and the blessings back and forth, all of that, Mount Gerizim was one of those two mountains, a, a significant mountain in Israel. And so they placed their temple mount on Mount Gerizim. Now, the blending of pagan ritual and biblical teaching was absolutely abhorrent to a Jewish culture that had been steeped in now what we call Pharisaism. The Pharisees were the purest of the pure as far as the law goes, and they saw the Samaritans as nothing but compromisers. They saw the Samaritans as nothing but wicked people who had associated with pagans. They vehemently rejected any association thus with the Samaritan people, painting them as outcasts and apostate pagans. In fact, they often, the name that they called the Samaritans, they called them dogs. That was the, the name. That's what Israelites, that's what, that's what the Jews called the Samaritans. They called them dogs. 
worse than a human. They weren't even human. This was the extreme amount of prejudice. This is why, by the way, when you think of the story of the Good Samaritan, why was it so impacting that when that Jewish man was lying there on the the road, a Levite and a priest walked by, but a Samaritan helped him. Abhorrent to the Jews. Abhorrent that a Samaritan would be the one. That is why that story is so impacting. Because these Samaritans, Israel wanted nothing to do. The Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. The resentment was so deep that often when Jews wanted to go from Judea up to Galilee, they would go the long way around Samaria. They wouldn't even want to go through the land that was Samaria. And they certainly would make it a point not to speak to anyone if they did go through. This history sets the stage for John 4. And explains why it would have been somewhat shocking that Jesus felt compelled to go through Samaria. He ended up in a city called Sychar. Which was near the plot of land which Jacob bought from Shechem. We have the report of that in Genesis 33.19. This plot of land had been given or had been taken, bought from Shechem, taken by Jacob. And it was also a piece of land that was given to Joseph as a part of his inheritance in the land. We read about that in Genesis 48:22. to reiterate it in Joshua 24, 32. This would have been the place, Sychar, where Joseph's bones were buried. As Joseph commanded that his people would bring the bones out his bones out with Israel when they left Egypt and that they would be buried in his inheritance. This was the area where Joseph's bones had been buried after being brought out of Egypt and into Israel. A spiritually significant uh, portion of history regardless of whether you were a, a Judahite or an Israelite. This account, however, would get more shocking If a Jew were reading John 4, it would be very shocking to him that he must needs go through Samaria. But it gets even more shocking. According to verse 6, Jesus stopped at Jacob's well to rest. And he stopped during the sixth hour of the day. Now, the Jewish time reckoning was a little bit different than what we would reckon time to be. It split into 12-hour segments, beginning at 6 and ending at 6. Beginning at 6 in the morning and ending at 6 at night. Then beginning at 6 at night to 6 in the morning. Their days began at sundown, around 6 in the evening was when a day would begin. However, they also distinguished days as daylight. And so while there is some contention as to exactly what distinguishment uh, the writer, John, is attempting to make here, I feel like we can be pretty confident that this would have been the sixth hour of daylight. And so Jesus most likely from 6 in the morning, you add 6 hours, it's the 6th hour of the day, right around noon, he's stopping to rest at Jacob's well. Now that's about right, his disciples are going to find some food for him, he's tired. If you're going to rest, right around noon is probably a good time to rest. And so we reckon most likely that Jesus Christ is coming to this well right around noon. Now as he sat, a woman approached to draw water from the well. This woman was a woman of Samaria. One can almost envision the scene. 
She's walking up to the well and she recognizes that this man is a Jew. He's sitting on the well. She expects that he will not even acknowledge her existence. Not only is she a woman, which there was a great class distinction in the Jewish society, as there were in most societies until Christianity um, liberated women. You won't hear that in the news. But until that time, there was great, great class distinctions between men and women. Men would very rarely talk to women. But not only that, but she knew he wasn't going to talk with her because she was a Samaritan and the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. It's probably fine with her because I'm sure she didn't want anything to do with him either, to be quite honest. The, the prejudice was not one way. They hated each other. Until this Jewish man looks at her and in verse 7 says, give me to drink. The woman is confused. She might have even been mad. Her answer is one that we might expect given the situation. Verse 9. How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. You don't talk to us. Jesus' answer is not quite what she would be expecting. Instead of answering in some prejudicial tone or even acknowledging her own prejudice, he shares the foundation of the gospel, which directly bypasses her prejudice and strikes right at the heart of her need. Verse 10, he answered and said unto her, If thou knowest, knewest, excuse me, the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Jesus states that if she knew the gift of God, he would give her living water. Now this confuses the woman greatly. See, this man had nothing to draw water with. How could he get any water? How could he? He had nothing to draw water with. Did he have another source of water? Was he greater than Jacob, the man who found the well, the man whose labor dug the well, the man who whose name is associated with the well? These were the questions she asked him. And these were the questions that Jesus wanted her to ask. Was he greater than Jacob? Certainly, he was greater than Jacob. The water from Jacob's well only satisfied temporarily, after which a person must again return for more. But anyone, anyone who drank of the water which Jesus had would never thirst, but would rather have a source of internal, eternal life. And that's what he tells her in verse 13. Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And so we come to the first point that we mentioned a few minutes back. The gospel holds no prejudice. You know, we live in a world that is filled with borders, with groups, with divisions, with segregations, with denominations. People cannot get along, can they? 
There is always fighting. There is always arguments. There is always something to disagree about. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans despised the Jews. Enter the gospel. Enter the gospel. The gospel knew no national borders. The gospel did not discriminate between Jew and Gentile. The gospel does not discriminate between Jew and Samaritan. The gospel does not distinguish race. The gospel does not distinguish gender. It does not distinguish age or culture or denomination. The gospel is completely free from bigotry, from prejudice, or from exclusion. The gospel is meant for every man. The gospel is applicable to every man. And the gospel is effective in the life of every and any man, woman, or child who is willing to receive it. Now, they have to receive the gospel on the gospel's terms. There's no redefining the gospel. There's no changing the gospel. There's no altering the gospel to fit your denomination or your race or your age. You can't do that. The gospel is the gospel. It is true, and it cannot be distorted, but it knows no prejudice. As a side note, one which we have already touched on many times and which we'll touch on again. There are really only two things in this life that can unquestionably unite men. The first is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which unites men regardless of their differences under this banner of truth. You know, the world talks about uniting all the time. There needs to be united nations. There needs to be united governments. There needs to be united cultures. There needs to be united this and united that. And we need to come together. There are only two things that can unite men as we look into the scriptures. The first is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second is opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that men will go out of their way to bypass ideological and cultural Barriers in order that they might come together to oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are the two things in this world that can truly unite men is the gospel and opposition to the gospel. All other situations, be it political, be it economic, be it cultural, or anything else, will always fall under the weight of human contention and human disagreement. And this is the entire theme of John, is it not? Darkness and light. These are two things that men can agree on. We as a group are unified under the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are mobs of people who are willing to unify under darkness. Darkness and light. So the gospel holds no prejudice. Second, important truth. The gospel has no disqualifiers. The gospel has no disqualifiers. You say, well, pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, listen to me and we'll talk about it. Verses 15 through 26, the gospel has no disqualifiers. In 15 through 18, we see that the gospel has no disqualification of character. The woman saith unto him, verse 15, sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, go, call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thine husband, in that saidst thou truly. Now, may I first of all say that the fact that Jesus Christ told her that she has had five husbands is not Jesus Christ saying that each one was 
a husband in the eyes of God and therefore it's okay to remarry because each one is considered a husband in the eyes of God. You can't use that argument here. That's not what Jesus Christ is saying contextually. That's not what he's saying culturally. He is telling her that she has been married to five men. He is not condoning the fact that she has been married to five men. And I believe we can see that very clearly because what is Jesus Christ doing here but not drawing out her sin so that she can recognize she's a sinner. I've heard that argument before. Jesus Christ recognized that she had five husbands. He called each one a husband. That must mean that each one was recognized in the eyes of God as a husband because Jesus Christ is God. You can't do that. Jesus Christ is drawing her out for her sin. For her sin. That's what he's doing here. Though we cannot explain or qualify sin in that manner. Now after hearing Jesus describe these living waters, she says, please give me this water. See, she was still thinking temporally. She was still thinking physically. She didn't fully understand Jesus Christ's offer. And so Jesus told her to call her husband. She responded quite truthfully. We don't know if she was ashamed or maybe it was very matter of fact. She said simply, I have no husband. Well, Jesus knew this and he confronted her on this unfaithfulness. He told her, yes, you have had five husbands and now you are living with a man who is not your husband. Jesus knew this already. Do you realize that? Jesus had already offered her living water. And he knew before she had said, I have no husband, that she had no husband. That she had had five husbands and that she was living with a man who was not her husband. Jesus knew that and he offered her living water anyway. In fact... For her to receive this living water, for her to receive the gospel, she needed to recognize and acknowledge her sinfulness. The gospel does not disqualify the unrighteous from receiving the gift of God. In fact, the gospel is for the unrighteous to receive the gift of God. See, there are factions of our minds that would try to convince us that we need to come to God righteous. That we need to remove our sin and come to God. That God won't accept us in the state that we are. This passage teaches us very clearly that the gospel is for the unrighteous. The gospel is for those who are in sin. Because it is only when we recognize that we're sinners that we can recognize our need for a savior. And so character doesn't disqualify a person from receiving the gospel. In fact, there is none righteous. No, not one. So, there's no man that could stand before God if character, if righteous character was a requirement. So, there's no disqualification of character. In verses 19 through 26, there's no disqualification of background. Now, as it continues, the woman recognizes that she is in the presence of a prophet. He must know that the Jews and Samaritans have different worship systems. How then could this Jewish prophet be offering her eternal life? Notice what she says in verse 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. What mountain? Mount Gerizim. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Our northern Israelite fathers worshipped in this mountain. Yet ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She is trying to create a dividing line here. She's trying to say, 
Look, you have your religion, I have my religion. You are a prophet of the Jews. I'm a Samaritan. You don't believe what I believe. I don't believe what you believe. You're worshiping in your mountain. I'm worshiping in our mountain. This doesn't work. And Jesus Christ informs her that the gospel that he is bringing, the good news, that which he is teaching, the eternal life that he is offering is not about where a person worships, but about who they are worshiping. He tells her in verse 21, excuse me, says, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. He tells her that there's a time coming when neither Gerizim nor Jerusalem will be the mountain upon which they worship. But rather, he says, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. What is Jesus saying there? We'll get back to it in a moment. Let's continue. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. The time is coming, Jesus says, when those that accept the gospel, which he is preaching, will worship God in spirit. That is, that their worship will not be compelled by ritual or location or law or ordinance, but by full reliance upon the spirit of God and on truth. That their worship would not conform itself to concepts of men, but conform itself to the character and the word of God. And so Jesus is contending here. It's not about your mountain or my mountain. It's about the truth of God's word. Now, this does not mean, however, that he was condoning her worship system. Jesus makes it very clear that there is a definitive difference between Samaritan worship and Jewish worship. Jesus came, as we know, not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus came as a complete embodiment of the law. And he makes it very clear to this woman that her worship system is false. She tells him in verse 22, you have no idea what you're worshiping. You're worshiping some enigma, some nebulous. You have no idea what you're worshiping. Say, yes, we're worshiping God. You have no idea who that God is and you have no idea what you're worshiping. He, he was tearing apart her worship system in a manner of speaking because... This system that the Samaritans had erected was absolutely false. In contrast, the worship system in Jerusalem is at least in framework the true worship system. Jerusalem was the place that God had commanded worship to be done. The temple was the place that God had commanded worship to be done. The sacrificial system of the Levitical law was the system that God had put in place. And that's what he's saying here when he says salvation is of the Jews. This system is coming. He is coming as an embodiment of the law. Jesus Christ is coming out of the law. It's coming from that which the Jews were were worshiping. However, though her system was false and the Jewish worship framework. Now, of course, the Jews had perverted that system. We know that. But the framework was true. Though this was the case, Jesus is telling her, look, you're not disqualified because of your worship system. No one is disqualified because of their background worship system as long as they accept and devote themselves to the truth of the gospel. Now, is that going to change their worship system? Yes. 
Is that going to change how the Samaritans worship when she accepts the gospel? Yes. Is it going to change how Jews worship when they accept the gospel? Yes, because the time is coming when all men shall worship in spirit and in truth, for such are those that the Father desires to worship him. Now to this, the woman again responds. We're, 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 we're in a conversation here. Almost longingly, she says, could you, could you imagine a sigh? <sighs> I know that Messiah is cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. She says, I just can't wait for the day when Messiah is going to come and he's going to work all this out for us. He's going to tell us who was right and who was wrong. He's going to work out how we ought to worship him. And on that day when Messiah comes, who is the Christ, see, they had that still. That was still a part of their worship system. Messiah was still there. The prophecies were still there. They still held to those Old Testament prophets. When Messiah comes, he'll make it all clear. Everyone will know who was right, who was wrong. The message of salvation will come with him. He'll tell us all things. And of course, Jesus responds in verse 26. I that speak unto thee am he. From this point on, it is clear that the woman accepted the gospel. That this gospel was for her. See, it had not been prejudice against her because she was a Samaritan or because she was a woman, or because she was a promiscuous woman. It sought her not in spite of her unrighteousness, but because of her unrighteousness. It welcomed her despite her former worship practices, despite her religious affiliations. And that brings us to our third and our final point today. If the gospel knows no prejudice, and if the gospel has no disqualifiers, then folks, the gospel is meant to be shared with Everyone. The gospel has no disqualifiers. The gospel has no prejudice. Someone is not going to walk through these doors and we're going to look at them and say, I'm sorry, the gospel's not for you. I'm sorry, this message doesn't apply to you. There is not one person on this earth, man, woman, or child, who we can say, I'm sorry, the gospel doesn't apply to you. And what does that mean about the gospel? That means every man. Every woman, every child, every moral standing, every religious denomination, every religious affiliation, every culture, every social class qualifies for the gospel. There's not a one that doesn't. And that's our third and final point, verses 27 through 42. The gospel is meant to be shared. The gospel is meant to be shared. Now, the disciples hadn't yet learned everything there was to know about the gospel. So as they came back up and upon the scene, the scriptures tell us that they marveled that Jesus would be talking to a Samaritan woman. Whoa, the, this Jewish rabbi, this leader has condescended to speak to a Samaritan. What is he doing? What if this gets out? What if the Pharisees learn about this? They're marveling. They did not yet recognize that the gospel was for all men, not only for the devout Jew. The woman, however, knew exactly what the gospel was, and she was eager to share it. She was eager to tell everyone she knew. So she left her water pot right there at the well. She entered into the city, the city of Sychar most likely, and said unto the men of the city, Come see a man which told me all things I, that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? 
She runs to the leaders of the city. She says, look, I found him. He's here. Is this not him? He told me all things I ever did. He must be the one. He must be the Christ. And they said, okay, we're coming. And they went out to see him. Now, meanwhile, the disciples, having gone and gotten food, were now encouraging Jesus to eat. Jesus was sitting there at the well. The woman ran off after this conversation. The disciples are here. And they were like, okay, that, well, I don't know what he was doing talking to her. But Jesus, we, we brought you some food. Eat. It's, it's, it's noon. It's six hour of the day. You must be hungry. We know you're tired. We need to keep moving. We're in Samaria. Let's keep moving here. Eat. Jesus tells them that he has meat that they know not of. Literally, he's telling them that he has a satisfaction that has come from a source outside of physical nourishment. The satisfaction of a soul having been one to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can still remember every soul that I have been able to lead to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, I don't know how, how it is when, when you lead someone to Christ, everyone reacts in a different way to it. But I have a particular, there's, there's, there's a particular trend that I have noticed. Whenever I lead someone to Christ, I can't sleep that night. It's happened every single time I've ever led somebody to Christ. I can't sleep that night. I'm so excited. My heart is pounding. My mind is racing. I just plain can't sleep. Hours I will lie in bed thinking and praising God and thanking God and, and I just plain can't sleep. That is the meat that Jesus Christ is speaking of here. That is the satisfaction that comes from leading someone to the Lord. That's a meat that they know not of. It's not a meat that is found in physical that, that great feeling when you have been hungry and you just finished a meal and you're like, okay, yeah, this is good. He says, I've got a satisfaction much greater than food. He bids that the disciples think with him on a spiritual plane and announces to them as they look upon that city and around the world that the fields are ripe with the souls of men and women who are ready to accept the truth of the gospel if only someone were to tell them. There are cities of people that we have written off, disciples. This entire nation of Samaria, these people that you won't even speak to, there are cities of people that are ready to hear the gospel. There are fields that are white unto harvest all over the Gentile nations. There are Romans, and there are Greeks, and there are Babylonians, and there are Egyptians, and there are people all over this world that are just waiting, eager to hear the gospel. There are men. There are women. There are children. There are friends. There are family members, neighbors, co-workers, co-students, strangers on the streets, atheists, Lutherans, Catholics, Baptists, evangelicals who are simply waiting for someone to show them the truth of God's word. They're there. They're waiting. And when you tell them whether you have sown the seed reaped the harvest, or both. You receive wages in heaven. And if you have ever been the privileged one to have reaped the harvest of a soul, you know that there is a meat much more satisfying than anything we ate just an hour and a half ago. And so the Samaritans came out of the city and Jesus abode with them two days. Just like the many Jews who believed on him in Jerusalem, now many Samaritans believed in him in Sychar. 
And they believed, as they would testify later in the passage, not because they trusted the word of the Samaritan woman, but because they trusted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we've learned quite a bit about the gospel today. We have learned that the gospel has no prejudice. We have learned that the gospel does not disqualify the unrighteous, but rather demands that every man recognize his unrighteousness. We have learned that it does not disqualify those who have the wrong background, religiously or otherwise. For while our past may inform our present state, it does not define our present state. And finally, perhaps most importantly for we who are believers in this room, which I believe is most of us, we have learned that the gospel is meant to be shared. Shared often and shared with everyone. So what are we going to do with that which we know about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we going to share it? Are we going to share it with everyone? When you look at that terrible sinner, or when you see that religious zealot, when you see the moral man, or the elderly person, or the child, do you see that life as a soul who is perfectly qualified to hear and receive the gospel? Or have you written off certain groups, certain people, certain denominations, certain types of people, certain moralities, certain sinners as unreachable? See, the gospel knows no borders, knows no prejudice, knows no bounds, knows no disqualifications when a sinner comes to God God's way. Let's pray.